Hello, I am Charles Webb, the Dean Emeritus of Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. Our guest today for Profiles of WFIU is Alexander Bernstein, the son of Leonard Bernstein, who is in Bloomington uh, celebrating two things. The last uh, performance that the School of Music, Jacobs School of Music, will give this season, and that's Leonard Bernstein's famous West Side Story. And also, we're celebrating a wonderful gift that was made by not only Alexander, but his two siblings, Nina and Jamie, to the Jacobs School of his Fairfield, Connecticut office that included a composing desk, much memorabilia, and also a gift to Leonard Bernstein from the uh, Vienna Philharmonic of a chair that was occupied and owned by Johannes Brahms. So we are indeed very grateful for this. We're very thankful that Alexander is in Bloomington, and it is a pleasure to welcome you to Profiles. Thank you so much, Charlie. I'm so happy to be here. We uh, started our association with Leonard Bernstein when Alexander was 15 years old. And I won't tell you how old he is today, but that was quite some time ago. Oh, that's old. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm going to begin my questions, Alexander, if it's okay with you, uh, to ask you something that probably you have been asked many times, but for our radio audience I think will be very interesting, and that is, what was it like to grow up in a household where even when you were born, your father was famous and became even more famous by the year as you grew up? What, what was it like? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, um, I'd be happy to. It was, at the time, it was all I knew, of course, yes. so I had nothing to compare it with. Of course. It was a joy, really. He loved being famous. He yeah. loved being recognized. <laughs> yeah. Fame, I think, in those days wasn't so much an industry as, <laughs> as it sometimes is today. And uh, uh, he really he enjoyed it. And there, there was just so much life in the household. Yes, of course. Uh, always wonderful and interesting people coming by. Right. Um, he loved, I mean, there was the family, of course, and his siblings who were around a lot. Right. But there were also all the showbiz people yes, who, who yes. were around and that he well, was very close with. Sometimes uh, when you talk to people who grow up in famous households, sometimes children feel a little neglected or maybe that uh, they didn't have enough time to be with either parent. Can you comment on that or did you ever have those feelings? The only time I had those feelings was when uh, he would go on tour with the New York Philharmonic or if he was off conducting somewhere. And he'd be gone, you know, for a month or two. But when he was home, he was really home. It wasn't as though he had an office to go to every day, especially if he was composing. So we got to see him a lot. And he loved being with his family. Yes. And he spent a lot of time with us, and we played a lot of word games and of course uh, and <laughs> he played word games with with everybody with everybody yeah. <laughs> that's right and uh played a lot of tennis and he was you know he's just a regular dad in that mm -hmm. department 
I never felt, you know, we knew we were sharing him with the world, basically. Right. And I don't think it was a, a decision he made that, oh, I really ought to spend some quality time with my children. No. He really loved hanging out with us and, and we with him. And he would, surprisingly, he didn't mind if I just wandered into his studio when he was working uh, and just play with his various the, the stuff he had in right, there and right. start reading a book or whatever. So uh, that was just wonderful just to be able to hang out right. uh, with him that way. Right. It's great to hear that because as I said sometimes people don't have that kind of relationship and of course I can say that from the outside uh, being with him uh, as often as we were I saw him be that way almost with everybody. That is I saw him willing to stand in, uh, in a line uh, of people who came after a concert, he would greet the very last person. No Absolutely. matter whether he was supposed to be at a dinner or a reception or what, he was happy to see the very last person. And this was a remarkable trait for somebody where people were clawing to get just an inch here and there. Absolutely. Know? And, you know, for us, sometimes it was <laughs> it tried our patience, yes. as I'm sure it did yours when we would travel with him and I remember going on a tour uh, and we were in Japan and it w every night it was two hours at least yes. of signing autographs uh, and talking to right. people and you know you just got resigned to it. Mm -hmm. Well another another great thing about your father was his interest in education and education for the masses as well as for the most talented musicians that uh, would seek him out for for knowledge. And uh, I wonder if you would talk just a moment about the Center for Learning, the Leonard Bernstein Center for Learning, that you have personally been so associated sure. with. Sure. I think he, he was uh, an educator pretty much in everything he did. And I think the idea of sharing uh, what he knew and communicating really is the, the connecting thread of his whole life's work, uh, whether he was composing or conducting, and he all he loved to teach, and he loved young people, and you know he did, he did the young people's concerts on television and the omnibus programs, right? The, the oh, yes. older people's oh, concerts, right? Uh, the Norton lectures at Harvard, right? Um, and he was a, a true scholar, a wonderful teacher, and and uh, engaging and really good at it. Uh, towards the end of his life, he really started paying more and more attention to teaching not just music, but um, how all learning right. can be connected through the arts. Um, shortly, and I at the time was getting my master's in education, thinking along the same right. uh, lines. After he died, we started the Leonard Bernstein Center for Learning and developed uh, what we call the Artful Learning Model which is now being used in schools all over the country and will be next, very soon here in uh, Bloomington, Bloomington at the Fairview right. Elementary School. Right. Um, and the, it puts the arts and the artistic process at the center of the curriculum. And we work with teachers uh, through professional development. Um, they learn how to work around a work of art, connecting that work of art mm -hmm. to all the different subjects experiencing the work of art, creating inquiry uh, into the work, 
um, reflecting upon all that, and then the kids make something in response to it. Mm -hmm. So they really own it, they understand it, and they can talk about it. You can talk to a third grader about anything that they're learning, and they can connect it to any other thing they're learning and explain it to you, and there's a depth of understanding that goes so far beyond, you know, what's tested and, you know, the content that is right. determined by the state or whatever. And all of that is taught and learned, but deeply and well-remembered and owned by the children. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, model. It, it works splendidly. Well, you, uh, while you've been in Bloomington, you had an opportunity to visit the Fairview School, where uh, the Jacobs School of Music has a very important project going on right now, as a matter I of fact. Yes, I watched this and, fantastic uh, violin uh, class. Yes. The uh, Jacobs School has uh, an amazing project uh, of, of violin classes for the entire first and second grades, and it's brilliantly presented and brilliantly thought out and they're doing research along with the instruction so they really get to find out how it's working how it's how the kids are reacting to it as far as their reading scores are concerned and and all of that and they're really learning to play the violin as well right, it's right. Just magnificent to see well it seems that this would fit the model that you were talking about in terms of artful learning and your father's idea that uh, to study music is not just for studying music alone, but these techniques can apply to many different areas as well. Absolutely, and, and he, he said uh, once that um, to really learn something, you have to look at it from the viewpoint of a different discipline. And I think that's really a, a, a good way of looking at all education and uh, what's going on at Fairview and what will be in the future with artful learning. Right. Well, that must also have been one of the reasons he loved puzzles so much and uh, to discuss all kinds of ideas with whoever he happened to be talking about uh, and not uh, one-sided with music. Oh, absolutely not. He, uh, he was interested in so many things and you know, we, we would talk about it endlessly, and I'm sure you did when he was with you. Uh, poetry, philosophy, physics, uh, you name it, politics. He had a really a, an amazing mind and an incredible memory. I mean, apart from all the music he knew, right. he could recite poems, really lengthy poems, and chapters from Alice in Wonderland he could <laughs> recite. It was right. incredible. It was an amazing mind he had. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, uh, let's talk a little bit about your siblings. And uh, uh, they're, unfortunately, not here with us no, today. No, I wish they, could, they wish they could be here. I know. But uh, tell a little bit about what, what they are doing. Okay. Um, I have two siblings, uh, two sisters, one older, one younger. Right. The boy in the middle. Uh, my older sister, Jamie, is... Um, Works. She writes her own uh, children's concerts, as it were, and performs them all over the world. And uh, she narrates them. Mm -hmm. uh, she's written about my father's music, but also about Copeland's music, uh, about various other aspects of music. And uh, she's a terrific uh, and enthusiastic presenter. Yes. Uh, I'm very proud of her work, and she's uh, she's doing very well at that. And she has a m 
bunch of other projects as well. She never stops, and she travels <laughs> a lot. And she uh, she has two kids herself. And my younger sister Nina is now working at a place called the Sylvia Center in New York. Uh, they teach kids about what they're eating and where it comes from. Oh my! And goodness. how how important. It, how important it is to know you know what you're eating and, mm -hmm. and what's involved in the preparation of it and where it comes from and um, and it's a fantastic project really and, and she's uh, she started out as a volunteer a couple of years ago and now she's pretty much running the joint which is Terrific. very exciting and and she's working so hard and doing really the Lord's work is it's fantastic that's great well now during this interview one of the things that we hope is that you will tell us two or three of your favorite pieces that mm -hmm. your father wrote, and then we're going to have some music in just a moment. So oh, why terrific. don't you mention one of those, and then we'll, uh, we'll be able to hear it. All right. Well, why don't we start with one that has something to do with you? Okay. <laughs> um, because you were so kind uh, to my father, you and Ken, of course, when he was here and, and for so many years of, of knowing him. And uh, he wrote a song as part of his song cycle, Arias and Barcarolles, uh, called Mr. and Mrs. Webb Say Goodnight. That is right. That and is right. Uh, it's a wonderful song, a joy to listen to. And uh, your uh, sons also are involved. They are involved. That's right. <laughs> They're in it, if, too. If you want to talk about it a little bit. No, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy just to say we were honored beyond belief to receive this manuscript in the mail one day without any warning whatsoever. <laughs> and uh, it's, it certainly is a beautiful song, and I think that's what we'll listen to now. Mr. and Mrs. Webb Say Goodnight from Arias and Barcarolles by Leonard Bernstein. Welcome to our radio audience, uh, back to the lobby of the Musical Arts Center of Indiana University Jacobs School of Music, where we have the great pleasure of interviewing Alexander Bernstein, the son of Leonard Bernstein, who is here for two important reasons. He is, uh, has the opportunity to hear West Side Story, which is currently being produced, and also uh, in connection with a wonderful gift that the Bernstein family has made to Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. Alexander, I wonder if we could talk in this segment for a few moments 
about the influences on your father, especially I'm thinking of musical influences, but others as well, as he was uh, both growing up and after he became who he was, uh, Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> but um, all musicians, regardless of who they are, are obviously influenced in their formative years. And I think it would be interesting to, to maybe hear a little bit from you about uh, what he might have said at home or on tour, whenever you would be with him, about influences that were important in his life. Absolutely. Um, I think probably the two earliest influences on him musically were the music uh, he heard at synagogue. His father was a very religious Jewish man in uh, Massachusetts, and uh, the cantor at the synagogue uh, was, as I understand it, a terrific singer. Mm -hmm. And they, they also had an organ. And uh, so that was a great influence on him throughout his life. Uh, his, he wrote a great deal of uh, religious music. Also, just music on the radio. Jazz and pop music from the time he was uh, born in 1918. Mm -hmm. And so from, you know, in the 20s and 30s, you know, there was jazz age and Gershwin and and you know even uh, the theme songs to the radio dramas and, and things like that and commercials so I think those that was really uh, the, the first mm -hmm. stuff he listened to then of course when he uh, started playing the piano yes which he learned <laughs> in about two weeks yeah. I think um, and he just started buying sheet music whenever he could and uh, and just ate up all the music he possibly could. Uh, when he started composing, I think, uh, you know, the influences at were abundant. Mm -hmm. um, later, I imagine, you know, you can see so much Stravinsky in, in his work, Mahler, obviously, Puccini, yes. I think there's a, a lot of that. In, uh, Hindemith, I think he was very much uh, taken with, and you know sometimes you know you hear actual a few bars of of Brahms <laughs> in you know uh, in, in some of his work, but you know every composer steals from exactly. the former from <laughs> from right. their influences, and uh, the trick is to make it your own. So in, in your household then did you have music on, that is, as either background or listening a lot? Interestingly, my father couldn't stand having music on in the, in the background. Oh, I understand if, if, that <laughs> very well. <laughs> he, uh, you know, if there was music, he was going to listen to it. Exactly. And so we rarely had uh, music playing, mm -hmm. and he couldn't get over the fact that my sister and I would do our homework with the radio with, on. He yeah. said, how could you possibly <laughs> do that? Yes. So we, did, we, we played his music, <laughs> you know, and he would listen to his test pressings of, of his recordings and right. this and that. And when we were driving in a car, we'd turn on the radio and hear sort of top 40. <laughs> he always wanted to be up on what the latest rock 
performances were and the latest Beatles songs or Rolling Stones, whatever. And so he loved listening to that. But just having it on in the background, not so much. No. But just one point about uh, listening to that to rock stations on the radio. Yes. He would hear a song for the first time, and we would get to wherever we were going, if we were going to our house in Connecticut from New York, he'd sit down at the piano and play the whole song. He'd, he could remember the entire song, uh, including most of the lyrics as well. well it I was can, just miraculous. I can believe that. that very easily because uh, during the time that he was in Bloomington writing A Quiet Place, where, as you know, he and his librettist Stephen Wadsworth were here along with his cook and his driver and a, a number of <laughs> the, other people. But it, we, we had the most wonderful experience because he would write at night and bring the music the next day for students to perform for him and he would have a dialogue with them about the composition itself and we had never heard of people composing that way. Mm. And one day he brought in an aria that he had written for a soprano and asked the girl, uh, do, you, do you know the music of Puccini? And she said, well, yes, I know some. Well, do you know Mimi's first aria? No, I, I, I don't know that. Well, now, this aria in my opera has an, a, a kinship here. I want to show you. So he went to the piano, and he started playing the entrance of Mimi in the, in the opera, and lo and behold, he forgot all about his uh, opera. He was playing every part. There was no score. No, he was playing every part. For 10 minutes, this went on. The people, the, the faculty and the students were aghast at this, <laughs> that all of a sudden, you know, out of the blue comes this, this uh, thought, and immediately he's playing the whole opera score. <laughs> but we didn't, we didn't see that so often. <laughs> but yes, he, he could do that. It was amazing. Were you uh, with him very much when he was guest conducting other orchestras, not just the New York Philharmonic, but as you know, he was sought after by, by every orchestra. Absolutely. And uh, did you do much traveling with I him? I was so lucky that I got my sisters and me as well, um, got to travel with him a lot. Mm -hmm. He loved having us with him, and we, it was the greatest experience you could possibly imagine. You know, we, we learned so much about the world. Uh, we got to travel to all these wonderful places and stay at really nice hotels, you know, and eat well and meet really interesting people and uh, see the world. And, of course, he had certain orchestras that he just loved oh, to, yes. to work with. Vienna. Right. Uh, the Israel Philharmonic. Right. Um, the Loved playing with them. The Boston Symphony. <laughs> the Boston Symphony, yeah. absolutely. But, I mean, whoever, and the, of course, student orchestras. He was so fond of, of you know, we, we were talking about him being a teacher earlier, and when he was at Tanglewood, for instance, right, uh, working with the student orchestra, he was in absolute heaven. And uh, he could get them to play so much beyond themselves. It was exactly. Well, we, we had that experience in Bloomington. I'm sure, when, in Bloomington. Uh, Although he came here for those two wonderful months to work on his opera, 
as you well know, it was impossible for him to be isolated. <laughs> he was with students, he was with faculty, and it was an amazing thing. Till when all he would, hours of the morning. Till all sure. hours of the morning, but when he would pick up a baton and begin to conduct one of our orchestras, it was a transformation, and it was, uh, it showed how, how important the conductor really is. Yep, and the conductor as teacher. He started um, festivals that are based on the Tanglewood model in uh, Germany, Schleswig-Holstein, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. as well as the Pacific Music Festival in Japan. So there's that part of his legacy is, is continuing. There well, uh, as far as his uh, uh, opportunities with student orchestras, we were very fortunate in Bloomington when the uh, Bastille Opera House could not open with an opera on the famous day that it was supposed to. And the, uh, the story is that the president of France, who has much more to do with culture in that country than a president of the United States would have, but uh, he asked for your father's advice, and your father suggested opening the Bastille Opera with five concerts by five great student orchestras. Well, of course, the next question was, what are those five? Yeah. And lo and behold, one of them that he mentioned was the Indiana University School no of Music. Doubt. <laughs> and okay. so we had a, a fabulous week in Paris uh, playing for, for that. So I remember as well when uh, the production of Mass, of my father's Mass, yes. uh, came at, to at Tanglewood, Tanglewood. Yes. And, uh, and it was just an amazing production, truly extraordinary. I remember he was so moved by that. Well, yes, and we even have on a television uh, where, where it was being televised there by Tanglewood, we have his remarks about that performance, and it was very touching to hear him mm -hmm. speak after, after it was over. Yeah. So I, I think yes, I think he said it may have been the best performance of anything. Yes, that uh, he, uh, he said not just of mass, <laughs> but of anything. anything. And we were flabbergasted. <laughs> that was a great way. <laughs> well, now look, uh, we we are also interested in in your your uh, favorites of his music. And why don't you name another thing that we could listen to here on, in this broadcast? Okay. Uh, well, we were talking about his um, having listened to the music of the synagogue earlier. Right, and right. Uh, He later, uh, he wrote uh, something called Chichester Psalms. Oh, my, yes. Uh, and it uses the Hebrew text from the Old Testament. Right. But uh, was written for the, uh, the Chichester Cathedral in, uh, in England. In England. So, it's an interesting great connection. well we'll we'll have an opportunity to hear at least a portion of Leonard Bernstein's Chichester Psalms
Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome back to the Musical Arts Center at Indiana University, where we have the great privilege of speaking with Alexander Bernstein the son of Leonard Bernstein, who is in Bloomington visiting the School of Music not only to hear some performances of his father's famous West Side Story, but also in connection with a gift that he and his sisters have made to the school of the contents of his Fairfield, Connecticut teaching and working studio. Alex, it's a great pleasure to have you here and uh, one of the things that we might talk about during this segment is uh, the fact that your father was one of the first musicians, composers, who combined classical music and jazz music or popular music in a way that uh, integrated both forms in a very uh, important way. And um, you, of course, he, as you have said earlier, he was influenced by Gershwin, he was influenced by uh, people in the synagogue as he was growing up, and he had a lot of musical influences. But this tension, let's say, between these mm -hmm. two things was uh, an important part of his life, and some people have talked about it with positive influence, some uh, not so positive. Uh, what would you maybe comment a little bit about about that particular subject? Yeah. He was so uh, deeply American in, uh, in the sense that, it, he, that there was so much of the world that uh, the European tradition that he was trained in, but also he had uh, grown up with jazz right. and um, and also the religious music as as we talked about before and it was this unique quality of his to be able to make all of that together his own and his own sound in a wonderful unique way i think uh when since we're here listening to west side story this weekend his collaboration with Jerome Robbins I think is really extraordinary because both of them were trained in, in an absolute classically European way and thoroughly and rigorously and they worked so hard at it and you know my father at the Curtis Institute and throughout you know learning the repertoire as a conductor and also early composer mm -hmm. Jerry Robbins you know learning classical ballet but also them being so uh, basically American. And uh, they saw this in each other, you know, uh, and the result in West Side Story is, is really uh, remarkable in that collaboration, which they also uh, comes out in, in the ballet Fancy Free, or, which they had worked exactly. on many years exactly. earlier. And, uh, and Jerry also uh, choreographed uh, on, on the town as well. I think it's very interesting that during his compositional life, really, his whole life, that although many 
musical influences in so-called classical music, especially in the middle part of the 20th century, went deeply away from tonal music Indeed. or even from what we think of as melody. Uh, Leonard Bernstein never forsook melody. He never uh, forsook writing music that was accessible to many people. And this was uh, both a positive and a negative thing in terms of the attitudes of certain people uh, during those, those very, I would say, tumultuous times <laughs> of, of composition. Absolutely, particularly in academia, I think. Um, yes. he, he often was very frustrated yeah. that uh, his music wasn't, quote unquote, taken seriously mm -hmm. because it was still so tonal and perhaps everybody thought it was too popular and, yes. you know, it was all this Broadway pizzazz yes. and uh, not serious enough. Um, and he did write a, a lot of 12-tone music and put it in uh, this 12-tone rose in cool. Yes, from what, from yes. What that yes that's right. Uh, that's but right. he always managed but to make it accessible exactly. and, and interesting and, uh, and fun, I think is a, a word that he always loved to use. Uh, serious fun uh, it was so important to him in everything and, and he saw a lot of the 12-tone music as really not yeah. fun. <laughs> well, we, we have spoken often in our school here about the fact that uh, if only he could be alive today and see, in a sense, a whole metamorphosis of attitudes about the music of Leonard Bernstein because mm -hmm. it is played now by every major orchestra everywhere. And uh, uh, I think he would be gratified to read some of the critics, what, what critics are saying nowadays about his music, uh, that where they weren't so kind at times in the past. That's, that's <laughs> so true. It, it's wonderful and gratifying to I'm see sure. that uh, he's performed much more now than, than more. he was when during yes. his lifetime and uh, and his his more serious works you know his symphonies and uh, it's fantastic uh, to see that well speaking of of the West Side story I understand that you have had a very personal connection with this piece oh as God. well so <laughs> why don't you just mention what uh, you and your siblings right. have done in, in connection with with live performance and also the recording yes the, uh, well I did have the opportunity to be conducted by my father at one time uh, when uh, he was making a recording of West Side Story with uh, Kiri Takanawa and yes. Jose Carreras. It's a fantastic recording. The band is all the best players in New York. Yeah. And, and he'd always wanted to conduct it himself because he'd never really, he'd never conducted it on Broadway. Uh, so he did it the way he wanted to do it. So for the speaking roles of Tony and Maria, he thought it would be fun for my sister Nina and I, both of whom we were acting at the time. We would do the, the uh, speaking parts uh, when they meet uh, at the dance at the gym. You're not thinking yeah. I'm someone else, you know. <laughs> and also during the balcony scene. So there we were in, in the recording studio and we had, I'd never 
really figured, you know, thought of how he would cue us, yeah. and, you know, and suddenly he, he raised his eyebrow. <laughs> and, I and that was know, your cue? And that was my cue. <laughs> <laughs> I totally missed it. <laughs> I was waiting. I thought he'd look at me and, you know, wave his baton or something. Give you a big preparation. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to stop, and he said, "Alexander, that was uh, <laughs> that was a cue." <laughs> but it was a lot of fun to be part of that, and Nina and I still have a great time joking about it. And we can't sit through a production of West Side Story without, you know, shrinking in our seats a little <laughs> bit when, <laughs> when that part comes along. When you were thinking about when it was time to come yes, in, yes, <laughs> right. Well, I I can remember sitting through a wonderful concert that he conducted with the Chicago Symphony. And after it was over, he was his usual gregarious self, greeting all of the, the people. And I saw a person that I recognized as playing in the second violin section, just standing over at the edge of the stage, sort of by himself. And I saw all these other musicians crowding around your father, wanting, asking, when are you going to come back and conduct us? So I just casually said to the man, I didn't even know him, look at all these musicians crowding around this conductor. And normally, uh, musicians in the best orchestras are not necessarily conductor lovers. And I said, what do you think it is about Leonard Bernstein? And without hesitating, this man said to me, I can tell you exactly. When Leonard Bernstein conducts the Chicago Symphony, I feel as if he's only conducting for me. Uh -huh. And what a statement for an individual, if that had been the concert master maybe, or the principal oboe right. or something. This was somebody sitting in the second violin section and he could say that statement. So the power of the communication, you were asking, or we were speaking a moment ago about the importance of the of a conductor. Well, it's it showed me uh, how urgent that was, mm -hmm. and what an influence he had on on these very important and sometimes jaded orchestral Absolutely. players. And I often uh, think about how important the rehearsal process was for him, um, so that because by the time of the performance. Often he could pretty much, you know, he, he had this trick, as it were, of just standing there, letting the orchestra play, uh, you know. Yes, scherzo, that's right. Just uh, by the Tchaikovsky, they, they uh, seemed to be doing well enough. Exactly. So he, he wasn't needed he at that felt, moment. But uh, his preparation was oh. so rigorous. Exact. It was amazing. So exact. And he worked so hard preparing and working on the score beforehand, and, uh, marking it, and... Um, and I think orchestras really saw that mm -hmm. in rehearsal, how well prepared he was and how he used his time very wisely. He talked a lot. Right. And I think a lot of musicians uh, sometimes, you know, didn't love that. But he, was re he wanted to get his point across, and uh, I think it was very appreciated. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us, uh, Alex, as you think back now over uh, a lifetime, and at least you... Uh, you were lucky enough to really grow up with him before he died. Uh, is there any incident or maybe a couple with him that stand out in your mind that you'd like to share with us and with our 
radio audience, just uh, some experience you had with him that was particularly meaningful or even humorous or whatever, <laughs> just uh, a very human side of him. Well, I'd say just uh, when I was lucky enough just to be with him mm -hmm. and we would go off maybe on a ski trip together oh, yeah. uh, to Vermont. And, um, was he and a skier? He, oh, he loved to ski and was very enthusiastic about it and was pretty good. Uh-huh. And we would just laugh, and he'd teach me so many things and, and our car rides, you know, all the way to Vermont, chairlift and so on, and falling down on the slopes and um, laughing about it. And also traveling with him. When uh, I mentioned before about this tour to Japan, we also went to Australia and New Zealand. Mm. And so I got to spend a lot of time with him uh, and the New York Philharmonic, but he, he and I spent a lot of time together. Good. There was a time, I'll quickly tell you, uh, during my adolescence when I was a teenager, where we didn't speak much. Uh, I was rebelling and doing all the you know, things that one does. Yes. 15 and 16. At one day, we were sitting in the library, and, and the radio was on. And the, the Pastoral Symphony came on, and I started singing along. And I just, it, it was one of my favorite things. And he had no idea that I'd been listening to classical music all this time. And he couldn't get over it, that I knew this. And so we sang the whole thing together for oh, <laughs> the next 40 minutes. And we just got back together from then on. Well, that's, that's a great story. And it, uh, it certainly... It speaks well for both of you <laughs> <laughs> that you got over the rough spots. <laughs> Through music. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, just before we finish, Alex, uh, could you say just a word about your mother's influence on you? And uh, I know, I think our, our audience will know that she didn't live as long as your father did, but uh, still in all, he speaks so warmly of her. Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, she was uh, from Chile yes. originally. Uh, she was uh, an actress uh, who performed a lot in New York, and um, she had left Chile uh, claiming that she was going to be a pianist, which was the only way her parents would <laughs> let her come to New York. God forbid she should be an actress in New York. Yeah. She was uh, an extraordinary woman of, of uh, grace and smarts and humor. Uh, and she was a very important influence on my father, yes. uh, telling him when he had gone too far. Too far. <laughs> and, and <laughs> you know, she told him what to wear because his uh, fashion sense was impossible. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so she was a, a very important uh, controlling influence on him and a lot of fun as well. Good. Well, it has been such a pleasure, Alex, to have you in Bloomington, to have you in the Musical Arts Center, and we thank you for this interview and for sharing some of the wonderful stories about your famous and uh, great father. Oh, it's been a joy for me to thank you so much, and thank you for all you've done <laughs> for our family and well. through the years, and uh, my father appreciated you and loved you 
and well, they it, can it do was so certainly much. mutual. It was certainly mutual. And a as we complete now, uh, what about that third piece that you'd like to hear? How about since uh, we've been listening to West Side Story and talking about it, uh, I think uh, off. I think my favorite song is Cool. Cool. West Side Story. The fugue really sends me. We'll, we'll find that and we'll all listen to it together. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2010. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.